It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. My name is Natalie Bucknell. Our guest today, Professor Ron Miller, earned a Bachelor of Science in Physics and Mathematics at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and a PhD in Biological Physics at the Wiseman Institute of Science. Ron and his lab members bring the tools of systems biology to bear on the challenges of sustainability. His research team employs a combination of computational and experimental synthetic biology tools with a focus on carbon fixation. Here are Kay Wenigal and Carly Dober in a fascinating conversation with Professor Ron Milo. Hello, Ron. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hello. Good to be here. Ron, in your quest to improve the ability of humanity to produce food and fuel more efficiently, much of your current research looks at how improved photosynthesis may in the future enable us to speed up the production of biofuel from algae and to help create agricultural crops that grow better and or faster. Can you tell us how that's progressing? Yes. So we've been working on this uh, central process known as carbon fixation, the process that happens in the living world of uh, taking CO2 from the air and turning it into sugars that then are converted into basically everything we eat, as well as the basis for much of the fuels that we've been using after they've been fossilized. And in our work in the lab at the Weizmann Institute in Israel, we've been looking at using a model organism, a bacteria known as E. coli, that usually lives in our gut, in order to try and see if we could use it in order to take carbon dioxide and basically change its diet. And in the past 10 years, we were hard at work at it. And we've shown that we are actually able to make that transformation and were able to produce the bacterium such that it would rely on CO2 in order to build all of its biomass. That's quite amazing and exciting to find out what you've changed to create carbon dioxide guzzling monsters. How did you come up with this idea and how did you actually achieve it? So it actually all started with a former student of mine, Aaron Bar-Even, who came up with the idea of trying to better understand and see the potential of metabolism, the name given for these transformations of matter from, say, CO2 into fuels, and that a good way to approach it would try to build it, meaning to try and see if we could reconnect all sorts of components that are inside bacteria in order to teach us about the potential to do such further transformations. And that's when it all started. It sounded a bit crazy to me in the beginning, but that's what we get paid for in a way, to try and do research that would broaden the horizons of what is possible. And that's what we've been after ever since. So how far advanced is this research and what sort of issues are you still working on? Yeah, so this research has gone through several milestones. In one major milestone, we were able to recreate 
the what's known as the Gal- Calvin Benson cycle. It's a cycle in metabolism that is usually happening in plants, but we were able to recreate it within this gut bacterium. That was one major milestone. And the second one was the, to take that cycle and make it such that it would actually create all of the biomass, all of the carbon needed in order to build the body of this bacterium to make it directly from CO2. So that was the second and major milestone. And in that, we were really able to convert, if you want, the mode of, of life of the bacterium. Uh, scientists like to give names to these things. So originally, it's what's known as a heterotroph, just like us, that is using you know, regular food. And we were able to convert it in several years of hard work into what's known as an autotroph, just like plants that are able to take CO2 in order to build the biomass. That's where we're currently standing. And we're now working hard in order to understand the genetic basis on how this transformation really happened. That's one major thing. And the other is to try and see if we could take another step forward and be able to do the step that would enable the bacteria to do this process under ambient CO2 level, just like what we have in our atmosphere, instead of needing to keep an, an environment which is enriched with CO2, which is the way we do it currently in our lab experiments. This means this requires some you know, extra thought and extra tweaks such that There has to be some sort of like an organelle or some, something like a pump inside the bacteria that makes sure that it could work with the ambient CO2. And that's part of the things that the talented students in my lab are working on. What applications do you envisage for this discovery, given your goal of efficient green scientific applications? Yeah, so the hope is that this would be part of the efforts of humanity in order to take us on a path of better sustainability and such that we could produce our, uh, say, feed for livestock more efficiently or be able to take up more of the CO2 that we're usually emitting into the atmosphere and be able to use it in a productive manner, for example, in order to recreate green fuels or uh, be able to store that energy or convert it into useful chemicals. That's the vision of what we're after. And I presume there's still a lot more work to be done to get to practical applications. As I understand, the bacteria still emits more carbon dioxide than it consumes as part of the growing process. Yeah, that, that is true. The, the way we're supplying the carbon is indeed, as I was saying, through CO2 that's you know, coming from the air. But in order to supply the energy that you know, plants usually do it through sunlight, We don't have that capacity currently in E. coli. It's not a photosynthesizing bacterium. And then what we're doing is supplying it with some alternative energy source. In our case, something known as formate. And in the process of using that energy source, you are emitting CO2, actually more CO2 than what you'll be saving later on. So this is currently not a solution or it's not a net CO2 absorber. It was more like a proof of concept in the and the scientific, you know, step forward, showing that this is possible, but not something that solves the problem altogether. So we go from a very exciting piece of research to a study a few years ago where you provided the first comprehensive estimate of the weight of every class of living creature on the planet, and you found that humans were just 0.01% of all life. 
Can you go through the different categories and the percentage biomass that each of them makes up? Yes. Yeah, so, so this study was came from sort of what could seem like a naive question of, you know, we were interested in, you know, the weight of life in the world and how it distributes among the different kinds of living things. For example, to make it concrete, do we have what weighs more, all the bacteria in the world or all the plants in the world, all the fungi in the world or all the animals in the world? And even though it sounds like, a, I think, a straightforward answer, when I'm asking that question, you know, and I'm, if the listeners want to vote, you know, in their mind about the answer, I find that this is, let's say, most biologists I'm asking actually get the answer wrong, even if they're, you know, at the top universities in the world and have been studying, you know, ecology for most of their lives. What we found in this study is that 90% is actually plants, which actually makes sense when you rethink about it, what's around you. And the other major components are indeed bacteria, which are about 5%, and then fungi, which is somewhere around 2% to 3%. And then, let's say, all of the animals combined, including us, are about 0.5%, so half a percent. How did you measure this and how accurate are your figures? We spent about the same time doing the analysis, doing the calculations, and then repeating them in order to get uncertainty about those. So, so we've been spending a lot of time trying to see how, how accurate we are. So basically, first, the process is based on integrating together all the data that's available in the literature for, you know, dozens of years and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of studies, each one often integrating many, many pre prior studies. So the process is really trying to integrate together the vast literature together with some mathematical and statistical analysis that gives you those figures. In terms of the uncertainty, it really depends. So let's say if we're talking about the mass of all plants, mostly trees, you find that we're pretty sure, meaning that like we know it to about plus minus 20% or so within very, very good confidence. In contrast, if you look at the mass of all bacteria or say all the viruses in the world, you'll get the same certainty only if you divide and multiply by about a factor of 10 or 15, meaning that you know the order of magnitude plus minus one order of magnitude, but you don't know the exact value. I would still say that I think there's a lot of value in knowing the order of magnitude. Even if you don't know the exact number, you know it just to about a hundredfold or tenfold, it's still better, way better than not knowing anything. And as well as that, in doing that research, you found out that while humans only make up 0.01% of the biomass, we've actually destroyed 83% of wild mammals. Can you tell us over what period of time that's occurred and how you determined this? This is talking about the, the mass of, of mammals as estimated before humanity, let's say, came on the scene versus what it is now. It has been cited as 83%, but I actually don't like using, you know, very accurate terms for this because, you know, we really don't know if it's like 83% or 81% or even 90%. What we were able to integrate is that there's about a six-fold decrease. And in that spirit, I would say, you know, in terms of uncertainty that's involved with this. And even there, it's a very tough uh, because, the, you know, there's been nobody around to document before humanity came on the scene and tell us exactly what was the mess of all the wild mammals. Did you find out any other disturbing findings? 
we found, for example, that if you look, you know, staying with mammals, that if you look at the mass of all mammals, you can compare between, say, the mammals which are in the wild and the mass of all the mammals that are livestock that are being grown to feed us. And you could ask about what's the relationship between them. And we find that there's about 20-fold more mass of livestock than all the wild mammals combined. Wow. Which I think, which I think is pretty shocking when you, when you think about mm. it. And I think the reflection of the, let's say, kind of dominance of humanity in terms of, you know, say, mammalian life on the planet. And so, so I think it's just a reflection of, of the situation currently. And I think we should be aware of it as a community. So that's like one result. And we did a similar analysis regarding birds. Uh, so there's many avid birds watchers in, in my lab. So we were looking at the, at the weight of all the birds in the wild versus those that are grown by humans. And we find that even there, the mass of all the birds grown by people is about twice all the birds in the world combined in, in the wild. And that's mostly chicken. So chicken, some turkey, And so we're very dominant in those effects. And even though, let's say, when we're watching a BBC movie of David Attenborough, you look at the bird and then you zoom out and you see many more and you zoom out and you see a huge flock that looks infinite. Well, it turns out, even if you take all of that inf seemingly infinite flocks and you multiply with everything you have in the world, it's still way less than what we humanity have been growing. I think it's something to keep in mind and a reflection of the current situation. That figure that you came up with of 70% of the birds are chickens was mind-blowing. Yes, it's a sorry situation for the birds and I think for us as well. Another groundbreaking and heartbreaking study calculated and contrasted human-made mass and biomass changes over the last century. You found that it is likely that in 2020, the mass of material made by humans exceeded all the biomass on Earth. How did we get from 3% human-produced anthropogenic mass to an equivalent mass in just over a century? And can you also please explain what anthropogenic mass is? Once we've arrived at the value for all the mass of living things in the world, the question that arose to us was, you know, we knew that this is relatively constant, somewhat decreasing because of cutting down forests, etc. And, and so this is relatively constant. And at the same time, the mass of things around us, you know, it seems to be more and more, you know, it could be cell phones or it could be buildings or it could be cars and many other things. Because this is rapidly increasing, we were interested in the question, when would these two curves intersect, if you look as a function of time? And when we approach it, we never guess that we'll find that the result is actually 2020, which is basically now. And so the mass of things produced by humanity is what we termed anthropogenic mass, like meaning things produced by anthropo, which is the name for humans. And this really constitutes the things that we produce. So it could be the houses that we live in. It could be things made out of metal, also the roads that we're creating. So it's not mass that comes out of thin air. It's usually things that you take rocks and you crush them and you make cement and you do something else, and then you build something with it, as well as all the gadgets that we're using or plastic that we're producing from oil remnants. So this is the anthropogenic mass. And the way that it increased so much in the, in the past century is just because not only there's more of us humans, but also quality of life and, and the amount of production has increased rapidly. Much of it in the construction area, where we've been constructing 
much more, both buildings and infrastructure. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Kay Wenigal and Carly Dober in conversation with Ron Miller. So given that the anthropogenic mass has doubled roughly every 20 years in recent decades, how do we grapple with a system like capitalism that focuses on infinite growth on a planet that has finite resources? So I don't have all the answers. It's, you know, it's a challenging question for all 7.7 billion people that we are here together on the planet. And also, I would say I myself am enjoying the house that I live in and I wouldn't want to give away my phone. So it's not that I'm advocating against technology. I think we should be cognizant of, of the fact that we're using a lot of resources. And even though the world is wide, it's also the situation. And I think this is not only a quantitative result that we got, but also a symbolic result that I think is important to be aware of that we have become a dominant force in shaping the face of the earth. And one way to see it is indeed what we find is like if you're a person randomly walking around the world and you ask yourself, what am I seeing more in terms of weight? Am I seeing more living things or things produced by humanity? Then we have just moved into a situation where there's more things produced by humanity that you'll be seeing around if you survey thoroughly what's around, uh, what's around in the world. And so... I think that with that, again, comes some responsibility because we can't, say, hide away behind the fact that we're just one species among many and we're just, and the forces of nature are huge. It's true that the forces of nature are huge, but also the force of humanity is huge, as, this, as can be reflected in this. A statistic in that study really shocked me, and it stated that on average for each person on the globe, a quantity of anthropogenic mass greater than their body weight is produced every week. And I know you were saying it was, you know, not just things that we use like phones or clothing, it was, you know, roads and houses. Did your team calculate when this pace would cease, given there are only so many resources that the earth can produce? Yes, This is also shocking for me to think that like for every week that I'm around, on average, a mass of things basically equal to my body weight is being produced every week and then the week afterward again and again. This is much of a reflection again of of construction and and a lot of construction that happens around us. In terms of when this would cease, so, so I think it's important to understand it's not that we're converting biomass into this stuff. Most of that mass The anthropogenic mass is really coming from things that are within the surface of Earth, like rocks. And for that, there's a lot to go. Like, you know, there's way, way orders of magnitude more. So we're not going to run out of rocks in order to build houses anytime soon or probably ever. So I cannot tell you time or a figure on when this would cease. I think it would be more like decisions and habits and norms of us humans how much resources do we want to consume and when is it enough or how to do things in a more circular economy or use resources more efficiently uh, for various reasons, either because of our personal decisions or because policymakers would think that we want to have a different world around us and it's part of our quality of life not to see only things produced by humans. Well, I can imagine that the graph would show that we're exponentially increasing the amount of anthropogenic mass compared to the biomass because the more we use of the Earth's resources, obviously, the more anthropogenic mass we produce. Your team launched anthropomass.org and that site is a delightful guilt trip which 
will show how quickly we humans are turning nature into stuff. And the site also is engaging and eye-catching with illustrations. Have you had any feedback about the site and where have you promoted it? So the idea behind the anthropomess.org, this website, is to try and tell the story of what we found in our research. And this is really a research that was headed by Emily El Chacham in the lab. And even though, you know, it might seem technical, we tried to write the paper clearly because we thought it's a message that we want many people to learn about. But we also did the website in the way so that it would be something people could engage with, including my 70-something-old mother, as well as, you know, my kids. So it could span a whole range of people. It was built in a way that's almost like a game in which you do something called scrolly-telling, meaning as you scroll down, you tell a story. It was something that Tai Rave, the graphic des- designer behind the website, taught me about. And through that, you get the picture of like really what are the different components of the anthropogenic mass, what are the different components of the biomass, and how they have been evolving through the 20th and 21st century, and how it really changed from being, say, 3% at the beginning of the 20th century to being roughly equal right now, as well as looking into the future. And what does the future show? So the future shows that the anthropogenic mass keeps increasing at the the rate of about uh, doubling every 20 years, And even with COVID-19 and whatever, we see that this trend is continuing. So indeed, it seems that we'll be seeing more and more human-made things. And that's really, it's important, again, to clarify, this is a two-edged sword. Like, it also has many advantages, and it's part of, like, giving shelter to people and giving uh, tools, etc. So it's not that we want to go back, but we want to find, I guess, some sort of a balance between these things. And yet another paper you produced was called the Anthropocene by Numbers, a quantitative snapshot of humanity's influence on the planet. And that was a broad quantitative picture of how human activities have impacted on the Earth's atmosphere, oceans, rivers, lands, biota and geology. So we can see very clearly the impact of humans on the planet's climate in Australia with bushfires that are increasing in intensity every year. Can you notice any changes where you are? So in my country, Israel, we're a relatively small country. I guess on the scale of Australia, you we're kind of like a dot on the map. And the density of people is relatively high. So indeed, we see much of, of the landscape turning into built areas through the years. So this is something clearly seen. And at the same time, there's also effects coming from climate change that are not easy to perceive us humans, but just by looking, because this happens on a different time scale. It's not like a forest that you see turned into a housing project, but, you know, something that requires much more measurement and attention, but it's pretty clear the accumulating evidences that we see it, and and those changes are real and are observed, for example, even in terms of the statistics of precipitation, how much rain are we getting, and because we are a country that is borderline. There are some points, that, some parts that are lush and green and some parts that are desert, very close to each other. On the one hand, it's, it's very nice because you can enjoy both sceneries just by half an hour drive. But that also means that with climate change and, and changes in the maps of precipitation, there's worry that many of those things would change rapidly. It would be very difficult, let's say, for the animals and even for the plants to adapt to that, to those changes. 
It was very sad, isn't it, to just watch it happen and observe it over your lifetime. Are you working on any other interesting studies or anything else exciting currently in your role at the Department of Plant and Environmental Sciences? Look, for example, at the mess of all the arthropods and insects within them and how much do we have in terms of that globally. So let's say insects is something that we're aware of all around us, be it ants or butterflies or mosquitoes, but there is no holistic value for how much are there altogether. So it's a tough challenge, obviously, because it's very variable and hard to quantify, but we think it's important to do it and we're making progress. I hope that next time we talk, maybe we can do an interview where we could report on that as well as give a benchmark because there's uh, other studies showing what's known as the insects apocalypse, meaning the very fast and alarming decline in their population. There's something known as the windshield effect. That is a very sad fact that people remember from their childhood. And then when in the summer, when they would drive to the beach, you know, and sometimes of the year, you'll see that there's many insects on the windshield. But now when they do that, it doesn't happen anymore. And they find it's not because something has changed, uh, you know, in the engineering of windshields or in, in how cars are driving, but it's really because of declines, major declines that could reach, you know, 90% of the populations that cause that. So we're trying to give concrete evidence-based estimates that could help understand what is happening around us. This is one example of something that we're trying to do. Another is about the mass of wild mammals that we touched upon and we're trying to give a more robust estimate of really what's the mess of the all wild mammals, how are they distributed, say, between different continents, different groups of, of mammals, and really give uh, more information on that. Well, we'd certainly be interested in talking to you again because we found that your team has done some such amazing work and research that we were trying to give our listeners a snapshot of the work that you've been doing. For them to get more information, where is the best place or places for them to go? I guess if they go to the website of the lab, Romy Law Lab, and they just write it in, in Google, they could see all the publications and they basically supposed all of them to be open and hopefully relatively accessible. There's also lectures available on YouTube where we try to give all the graphics and information in both in popular uh, form as well as in the scientific form. So I hope people could find that useful and they're willing to write me directly if they have any questions or if they need extra information. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Ron. My pleasure. You've been listening to Carly Dober and Kay Wenigal in conversation with Professor Ron Milor. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe to help others find the show. We look forward to you joining us again next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.